got a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 20, uh, all the way through chapter 23. And this portion of God's Word contains things like this. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's got things in it like this. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's got things in it like this. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. And so with texts like this, what do we do? What do we do when we come to weird and strange texts? Well, if we're honest, a lot of times we ignore them. Right? That's why you get your Bible reading plan, you make it through about February, and then you're like, eh, let's just skip ahead a little bit. But like the title of the sermon says, don't skip the strange stuff. Like, it's strange. I get the, the Old Testament's got some strange walls. I get that. That's a bit of Captain Obvious. When you read it, it's a little bit strange. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That's strange. But that doesn't mean that these strange, seemingly strange walls to us are completely irrelevant to today. Okay? But at the same time, it also does not mean that there are like a one-to-one correlation to today and we just bring them lock, stock, and barrel in their particularities into life today. And so let me just kind of theologize with this for a minute and try to give you a grid and a framework before we even get into anything, in how we are to approach these seemingly strange texts. And so grid number one, because I mean, this is the Word of God, breathed out by God, profitable, right? For training and correcting and reproof. That the man of God might be equipped for every good work. So this is God's Word. So how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? Well, grid Component number one, and this is not in your notes, this is just part of the introduction, though you may want to write it down, I don't know. Grid component number one, keep in mind, like what we talked about last week, that the Ten Commandments are kind of like the U.S. Constitution. Like they are the foundation, they are the framework, the undergirding for everything. But then flowing out of them, there's a gazillion different federal laws for specific people at a specific time in a specific place. But all of those federal laws is, you know, find their undergirding in the Constitution, right? That's why when there's a question about them, it rolls up to the Supreme Court and it's based on, does it match the Constitution? That's kind of like the same thing with the Ten Commandments. We've got all these other laws, but they all find their basis in the Ten Commandments. So that's kind of grid number one. We're, we're dealing right now with the federal laws given to Israel at that time to help guide them. All right, but every single one of them is founded in the, in the Ten Commandments. Grid component number two. Remember like what's going on with Israel right now. They, they are like seven weeks out of 
Exodus, like seven weeks out of 400 years of bondage and oppression. And so, I mean, they have no idea how to conduct themselves, how to relate to one another. There's no framework for that. They've always been told, you know, do this, do that, do this. They have no idea how to get together, how to work together. And so this is, you know, God coming in and giving them an idea. It's not that unlike some of our college graduates who will go off and, you know, have a roommate they've never met before. They have no idea how to get along and they're going to have to establish some rules and some you know, some, some laws for how we're going to relate to one another, how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. And so this is God coming in and saying, hey, let me give you some specific applications of the law that I've given you of how you should live together at this time. But again, even those specifics find their basis in the Ten Commandments, in the eternal moral law. And so grid number one, understand, keep in mind, Constitution, federal law. Grid number two, keep in mind, they've got to know how to govern themselves. And then grid number three, to keep in mind, we kind of talked about this last week, but when you think about Old Testament law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 commands in the Pentateuch, when you think about all of that, you can get kind of divide it up into moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. And the civil and ceremonial law is temporary, pointing to the Messiah. And so once Messiah comes, Jesus has fulfilled that and it's no longer binding on us. It has served what it was meant to do. Jesus came and was the once for all time sacrifice. So we don't have to keep sacrificing anymore. Jesus was the once for all time sacrifice. And so the civil and the ceremonial law are no longer binding. And so you can eat your shrimp. You can eat your cheeseburger. I'm not sacrificing a lamb up here today. You guys can wear your mixed fabric skinny pants, though you shouldn't. (laughs) But you can. The civil and ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and are no longer binding. But the moral law, which was also kept by Jesus in our place because we all fail to keep it. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus did that for us. But though he fulfilled it, it, it is not now like no longer binding because the moral law is eternal and unchanging because it's a reflection of God's nature and character, which is eternal and unchanging. And so it can't go away. I mean, the, the moral law, like all the Ten Commandments, you see every single one of them long before they're handed down to Charlton Heston here on Mount Sinai. You see them long before that. You see them all through Genesis. You see it in creation. You see it with Cain and Abel. You see it with uh, Abraham and Sarah. You see all of them on display. And so the moral law of God does not have an expiration date. And therefore, it still is there. And so listen closely now. While the condemning aspects of the moral law have been you know, removed because Jesus has fulfilled them, the commanding aspect of it remains as the path of life. 
as God's divine guide to life. Here is how life works best. Here's what it looks like. That's what the moral law of God is. It's not to merit anything, but because of a new heart that we've been given in Christ with new desires, new affections, now we live differently. We, live, we seek to live change. We seek to live like Christ. And so here's how all of that fits together, all this grit, all this stuff. A lot of the strange laws that you come to in the Old Testament are civil and ceremonial. And thus the specifics of them are not binding on us anymore. But the underpinning of them, the foundation of them, the eternal and unchanging moral law that they're based on, because again, federal laws roll back to the Constitution, that moral law absolutely does still exist. And so our goal then, when we come to these strange laws, is to seek to get at the heart of the moral law that lies behind them. The overarching, unchanging moral law principles that are applicable at all times, in all places, even as the specific particularities here are no longer. Because Jesus has come. Because we're not a theocracy. I mean, we're not even an agrarian society, right? How many of you have goats? Probably like a couple of you. And so, Lord willing, part of what I wanted to do this morning, we, we, we just kind of did, which is just kind of give you a, a, a grid by which to approach Old Testament law, particularly strange and, and weird things that we, you know, that we come to. And so I would, just want to kind of give you that grid, but now what I want to do is I want to go through it with you over the next three chapters and look at some of these. All right, we're going to have eight big picture principles trying to distinguish out civil and ceremonial law that's specific to that time, specific to that group of people, you know, no longer binding because we're not a theocracy, because Jesus has come. But look at the big picture moral law that undergirded that, that is still binding on us as followers. It's our path of life, how He calls us to live. And so, for time's sake, I'm not going to be able to read everything. Uh, I'm going to spend more time on some things than I'm going to spend on other things. But we'll try to make our way through these. So, number one, the very first one we're going to look at today, overriding principle of chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, is this. Worship as God decrees. Worship as God decrees. Like what this passage shows us is that God defines worship, not us. We don't just do whatever's most consumeristically attractional. Like that's not, that shouldn't be what you, how you decide what you do and don't do in worship. God tells us how to worship. He defines it. That's what this little passage about altars is all about. God's saying, hey, wh- worshiping is about me, not showiness. It's not about being showy. And so like today, it's not to be a concert. It's not to be entertainment. If you want to go to a concert, that's awesome. I love them. This isn't to be a concert. This is us singing together and to one another. This is us hearing the Word, encouraging one another, being a family. I mean, this is why we purposefully aren't flashy or gimmicky. This is why like, we don't hire or seek to be cool celebrity pastors. I mean, it's like a job description. 
Like when we gave a job description to Chad several years ago, one of the requirements was, don't be cool. And Chad was like, I fit the bill. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm making that up. None of us are, are cool, purposefully. And we, had, we, had a, we, had a, uh, we had a membership interview with some people recently. And uh, they're like, one of the things we really appreciate about the church, and don't take this the wrong way, it's like, it's uncool. And we're like, thank you, I think. No, 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 no. I mean, but the point is, like, we're not, we're not here. This church does not exist. Like, I'm not trying. We are not trying to build our brand on social media. And the church isn't a marketing scheme. That's a franchise. The church is about Jesus. The brand we want to build is Jesus. The name we want to promote is Jesus. And so we're not flashy. We're not gimmicky. That's not like worship as God decrees. It's, not, it's, a, it's about Him, not stuff, alright? So that's number one. Number two, before I state it, we are going to wade into the nitty-gritty of this one. Because not only is it strange, it's, it's actually kind of hard and maybe even opp- seemingly oppressive at first. And so I don't want us to dodge it and people are like, let's dodge the hard stuff. Let's look at it together. So chapter 21. This is one of the ones we'll spend a little time on. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, read with me. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring to him, bring him to the door, the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so again, what on earth is going on here? Is the word condoning something that we would say is like the biggest social ill in society, like the history of recent society? Or today, like sex trafficking, slavery goes on. 25 million people are slaves today. Well, first of all, as we look at this, we need to understand slavery that's being talked about here at the time of Moses is not even remotely close 
to slavery that we think of in America. And and it's not even remotely close to slavery of the Roman period, which was different from slavery in America. Like slavery in America, what we typically think of in terms of like somebody racially oppressing somebody, kidnapping them from their culture and forcing them against their will to work for them for the entirety of their life, splitting up families at will, however they want. Like that's not even remotely at all. This is not chattel slavery at all. This is far more a domestic contract with time limits. And it's voluntary. People voluntarily chose to put themselves into service for you know, six years or whatever. It's not really, in a lot of ways, it's not unlike the military today. You sign up for a two-year, four-year, five-year, ten-year deal, right? And you contract with them, but after that, they tell you where you're going to live. They tell you you're going to be deployed for this amount of time, and you're going to be separated from your family. You're going to go do this, you're going to go do that. Right? You're not a slave, but until that service term is up, they call the shots. That's much more what this is like. And so, in the midst of this, the Lord's coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to set some limits on this to make sure it doesn't get abused. You guys just came out of oppression. Let's make sure we don't go right back into it. So He gives a couple of commands here. One is He sets time limits. Like, hey, after six years, you go free unless you voluntarily decide I'm going to stay in. Like a lot of times people who went into, uh, sold themselves into slavery of this time was because they were impoverished and they get room and board and a fair wage. Six years they get out, new life, right? So that's what this. Also, you see in this type of setting, it's focused on keeping the family together. Provisions to make sure the family stays together. You have a choice in this. And then when we begin to think about female slaves, verse 7, again, at first it sounds harsh to us. Why did God allow men to sell their daughters to the service of another? We don't know all the details here, but bare minimum from the text and from culture, we can note a couple of things. Number one, we know that this isn't just like the father trying to get rid of his daughter. Again, slavery was all, the, the slavery of this day was all based upon uh, finances. And so this is an impoverished dad seeking to better the life of his daughter by trying to get her into a rich family whereby she might be considered part of the family. That's what this dad's doing. This isn't something he's happy about. The, the, there's, there's a... The people of Israel at this time, again, seven weeks removed from Egypt. They have 400 years of baggage of marriage and relationships outside of God's design. They're just now kind of learning what that's to look like. And so God's saying, hey, in the midst of all this mess that you've got, I'm at least going to lay down a couple of walls to make sure that these young ladies aren't exploited. Impoverished ladies, young ladies that could be exploited as their dads are seeking to better their 
financial situation for life, get them out of the cycle. And so he gives a couple of laws here to make sure that doesn't happen. Number one, if the marriage doesn't work out, they can be ransomed back to the family, but under no means can they be sold. If she becomes engaged to one of the sons, well then, man, full right, she is a daughter, part of the family. If the engagement ended, the man had the duty to still provide food and clothing and provision. And so again, God's handing down these walls here for people, like even in the midst, like laws that are even in the midst of of, of a people that are operating outside of God's design for marriage, He's trying to show and, and protect these ladies. And so the overriding message here is that God loves His daughters then and now. And He wants His daughters treated lovingly and justly, not exploited. Even in the midst of situations that are outside of His design, He's making sure that there's laws to make sure they're not exploited. And so bringing these strange laws then down to you and I today, what we see through this, all the way from verse 1, all the way down to verse 11, is that in all the spheres of everyday life, career, relationships, God calls His people to a very different way of living than the Egyptian society He just brought them out of. And in our lives, God calls us to a very different way of living than the, than the worldly society He's called us out of. Like We are in the world, we live there, but we're not of the world. We are to be different, different values, different desires, different affections. And He's showing us that the Lord cares and values all people, whether that's employees, whether that's people going into marriage, and He commands us to do the same. And so number two, the big picture application here, all right, the moral law that's superseding these civil specifics is this. Care for your employees like deeply and their families and protect them from exploitation. Care deeply about your employees and their families and protect them from exploitation. Like, don't just make decisions based upon your bottom line. Think about a dude's family. Think about the circumstances that firing someone, letting someone go, might issue their family into. And I know that's not how the bank thinks. I know that's not how stockholders and stakeholders may think. But that's how God wants us to think. Because we are to live differently. We have different values. We think through things differently. And so don't just think about like, how little can I pay this person and keep them here? How much can I bless this person and still make sure my business is okay and that I've got a proper fair wage as well? How can I make sure I don't exploit this person by paying them the absolute lowest amount and working them to death? 
Big picture moral law. Almost, I mean, all these eight things almost read like a job description for the follower of Jesus. Care deeply about your employees and their families and protect them from exploitation. Don't pay a lady less than you would a man for the same job. We've got to keep going. Next section, chapter 21, verse 12, all the way down to verse 32, is all about the call to, number three in your notes, value life. Value life. And so like murder, assaulting parents, kidnap and enslaving people, cursing parents, the civil law here in chapter 21 says all of these things are deserving of capital punishment. And so whatever you may think about capital punishment, whether that should be in play or shouldn't be in play, I can make a jagged line argument for either side of that today. Regardless of that, the severity of the punishment that's laid down here should at least highlight how serious God is about valuing innocent life and honoring your father and mother. And so, I mean, it's Mother's Day, right? This is like, uh, you know... Low-hanging fruit, honor your father and mother. Man, honor your moms today. If you are lucky enough to have a mom who is alive, honor her. Call her. If you're close, go see her. If you, your mom has passed away, honor her memory. Talk about her. Tell stories about her. Honor her today. We're to honor our mother and father but we're to value all of life. And it's interesting to me that in this section about valuing life, if you read all of it, there, there is a specific law as it relates to the issue of abortion. So look at verse 22 real quick. Verse 22 here in chapter 21. It says this, when, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so it's been talking about guys in fistfights, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her surely shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. These laws are primarily given to judges. Remember, Moses was doing everything. Jethro said, that's not good. You need to delegate and have other judges. This is what's going on here. Look at verse 23, though. Here's, here's the particularity. Here's how it hits. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. And so the baby in utero is considered alive. Life for life. That, like, they're, they're equal. Both are alive inside the womb and outside the womb. But the big call overarching deal here is just value life, human life, the image of God that all people bear and gives all people dignity, worth, value inherently because they've been marked by the Imago Dei. Value life. All human life. Number four is this. Right wrongs and reconcile quickly. Right wrongs and reconcile quickly. This is what we see from 2133 all the way down to 2215. 
Like we are called to reconcile quickly. Don't let stuff just set up and cause a root of bitterness to develop in your heart because you just sweep it under the rug, 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 and eventually someone steps on the rug, poof, it all comes out and explosions happen. That's like my modus operandi. That's, I have to guard against that. That's how I work. Nothing, 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 nothing. Right? And so this is a word to me. Right wrongs and reconcile quickly. I mean, Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. And so reconcile quickly and where you can make things right that you did wrong. Pay back. Be fair. Don't cheat people. And Christian, a apologize like the words i'm sorry will you forgive me should be common on our lips to not easily apologize is to think that you aren't a sinner that you don't sin like if you if if you have a hard time apologizing admitting wrong saying i'm sorry you have a huge pride issue Huge pride issue. Humble yourselves. I'm sorry should be common and frequent on our lips. Like daily, maybe multiple times a day because we sin. Say I'm sorry to the people that you offend, that you wrong and reconcile quickly. Let's keep going. Number five. Number five is pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Holiness. Look at chapter 22, verse 16. Chapter 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, that means like engaged or married, and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Like in those days, you had to come, and if you were serious about you know, engaging someone, you had to put up a sum of money almost... Like when you're, you're doing a mortgage and you put, you know, earnest money. Like this is how earnest I am about pursuing this young lady and courting her towards marriage. This is, I'm dead serious about this. And so if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. God is just setting up an establishment like you can't just run around taking advantage of people with no repercussions. I want to protect my daughters. I am going to take care of my daughters. But then also notice this, the next three verses. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So straight up notice this. Premarital sex is grouped with sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry. By God on purpose. 
And so don't believe the lie that cohabitation, living together before marriage is a good idea. Well, we won't sleep together. Yeah, right. Premarital sex is a sin. That's crazy countercultural in this world that we live in. Now, is there forgiveness for that? Absolutely. Praise God there is, right? This is the whole point of the cross. We fail. Jesus paid for our sin. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And when the Bible says no condemnation, do you know what that means? It means no condemnation. Like none. Not a drop. Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't pay some. He paid it all. And so don't wallow in guilt, but go and sin no more. That's why the call here is to pursue holiness, not perfectly always and forever be holy. Because we can't. We won't. Pursue holiness. And so wherever you're at, that's the call. Pursue holiness in your sexuality. Whether you're married, pursue holiness. Unmarried, pursue holiness. Currently cohabitating, or pursue holiness and make changes. Same-sex attracted, pursue holiness and don't give in. Wherever you're at, pursue holiness. And remember grace. Always remember grace. But pursue. All right? Number six has also got the word pursuit in it, and here it is. Pursue biblical justice. Pursue biblical justice. So, social justice is a biblical idea. It's right here. We're going to see it. It is a God-given idea. The problem is that the term in modern usage today has been co-opted to not only include these specific biblical commands, but also to include like full affirmation of the LGBTQ plus movement and full affirmation and allegiance to things like critical race theory. Now there's things that we can learn from CRT, but the underpinnings and the outcome of that are absolutely antithetical to the gospel. Antithetical to the gospel. It is an atheistic theory that has no room for uh, repentance and faith and the heart change, God remaking people. And it's just all people at all times should be completely uh, summed up in their personhood based upon their race and class and whether they're an oppressor or an oppressee. And that's antithetical to the gospel. In, in a gazillion different ways. I mean, one of which is just from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, like now that we are followers of Jesus, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't define people forever and ever on race and class and that there's no hope, there's no change, people will always be this way, and it's just about taking power by any means necessary. That... That's how biblical, like social justice has co-opted good and right biblical themes on a lot of things with things that aren't biblical. 
So we've got to learn to distinguish the term social justice today with all of its negative baggage from biblical justice, which is still biblical, even if it's lump summed sometime with all this other nonsense. So we've got to distinguish those. And so biblical justice, as compared to modern day social justice movement, like biblical justice isn't about anarchy. Biblical justice isn't about Marxism. Biblical justice isn't about CRT. Biblical justice isn't about full affirmation of those things that God clearly says no on. But it is about full affirmation of those things that God clearly says yes on. Things like chapter 22, verse 21. So look at this with me. Chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Sojourner means refugee, it means immigrant. No definition of illegal or illegal sojourner. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cries. So praise God, He hears our cries. But look at this. If you mistreat them, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God so identifies with widows and the fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And he cries to me, I will hear him. And look at this, for I am compassionate. The word's compassionate. We're to be compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And that goes for politics. We're not to curse our political leaders. And it goes for elders in the church. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. So this is about generosity. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You'll remember Jesus was consecrated at the temple on the eighth day. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. All right, now chapter 23 reads like headlines today. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And so just because someone is poor or oppressed doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. So you want to be careful with partiality not to go either way. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, So enemy here, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. 
you shall rescue it from him. And so even if your enemy does something absolutely stupid, they are reaping what they sow for their stupidity, burden down their donkey too much. It's like breaking down under the weight of that. It's still our responsibility as Christians to help. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So just because someone's rich and powerful doesn't mean they should be able to escape justice. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so again, the overarching moral law idea here that is still at play is pursue biblical justice. Not, not all the other mess, but these things that God declares and commands. And God expects that we would care for those who are in need because He cared for us when we were in need. When we were fatherless, when you were fatherless, He adopted you. When you were a widow, He became your groom. When you were a stranger to His grace, He welcomed you in. When you were His enemy, He saved you. Those who know such love should show such love to a broken world. This is what we are called to do. Old Testament, New Testament, lips of Jesus, lips of the apostles. We are called to this. This is, I mean, kindness, empathy, love of neighbor. Like, love God, love your neighbors. This is what the Ten Commandments are about. And so, big picture overarching here, pursue biblical justice, not to be confused with social justice movement. Two more, super fast. Chapter 23, verses 10 through 19 is all about remembering the Sabbath and in particular, remembering the Lord, and also that there's a couple of times every year where the Israelites were commanded to have specific festivals. And Now, bringing this down to us today, some of you guys are going to love this. Number seven in your notes is celebrate the holidays. Celebrate the holidays. Like All these specific festivals were times where the people of Israel were to focus specifically on Christ, well, on God, looking forward to Christ, in these festivals. And for us today, that's what holidays are supposed to be, Right? And not, I mean, like today, Mother's Day, like thankful. It's good and right to have a Mother's Day, but Mother's Day is like created by Hallmark to make money by selling cards. But like Christmas is a legit religious Christian holiday. So we set aside time at Christmas. We walk through Advent together, right? Lent, something that evangelicals a lot of times don't really recognize or walk through but still those 40 days from ash wednesday leading up to you know sun easter sunday those 40 days is a good time to set aside time to specifically focus on christ easter we celebrate christ we celebrate christ in these it's fine to do the little things as well but christ is the highlight celebrate the holidays focus on christ and then number eight stand on god's promises this is the big picture out of all the specifics here at the end of chapter 23. It's a call to stand on God's promises. God's promising 
I am going to get you to the promised land. I will see you through. I will take you there. I will be with you every moment of the way. Discouragement, difficulty, hardship, disappointment. I'll see you through. I will get you to the promised land. And the same is true in our life today. God is guiding us to the true and better promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. And He will get us there someday. And He will be with us all along the way. And someday we will realize the fullness of Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is that glory? It's Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them, like physically, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so friend, until that day, it's coming. He will see us through, but until that day, stand on his promises. Stand on the gospel that he made him, Jesus, to become sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus takes our sin, he gives to us his righteousness and now calls us to walk in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalm 23. Which includes worshiping as God decrees. Caring for your employees and families and protecting them from exploitation. Valuing human life. Righting wrongs and reconciling quickly. Pursuing holiness. Pursuing biblical justice. Celebrating holidays. And standing on God's promises. We do these things for His namesake. His glory and our own good. For truly, His law is the path of life. And so don't skip the strange stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You give us a path of life. You call us to action. We are not left to ourselves to figure out how now shall we live. You've called us to this. And I thank You that it is not something we must earn or merit or live up to in order for you to love us. Rather, it's something we seek to live out because you love us, because you've forgiven us, because you've shed your grace upon us. And so, Father, help us to live these things out for your namesake. For love of you, that flows from all our heart, our mind, and our soul. 
and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, not seeking to try to figure out who is my neighbor and who can I get out of loving, but rather asking the question, whose neighbor am I? Who am I actively neighboring today? Help us for the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.